Let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Kings today. 2 Kings, you'll find that about maybe a quarter of the way, fifth of the way through the Old Testament. 2 Kings chapter 2 is where we're focusing today. We've been talking about Elijah for the last few Sundays who had profound and unwavering commitment to the Lord. He had a dogged determination to honor and glorify God and wanted all the people of Israel to do the same and was given, driven, unyieldingly so that the people might worship the Lord and him only for he alone is the true and living God. And Elijah's stories, you remember, began in 1 Kings chapter 17 and there it was during the reign of Ahab and his evil wife Jezebel in which this prophet was raised up. Now, the king and the queen not only promoted idolatry there in the nation of Israel, the land of Israel, but they attempted to make Baal the singular God by which all would worship. You'll recall that Jezebel tried to execute all of the prophets of Yahweh and elevate the prophets of Baal and Asherah exclusively. Now, if you know the story of, of 1 Kings, you'll Remember that throughout the narrative, there is a degradation spiritually and morally of the nation, just a slow, steady decline. But that low point spiritually really got to a dismal place of depravity under the leadership of Ahab and his wife. And so the prophet Elijah begins his ministry at the depth of that period in Israel's history. Last week I shared from the narrative of 1 Kings chapter 19. It was nearing the prophet's end of life and uh, he was brokenhearted for the sake that Israel had gone away from the covenants of God. They had brought down, tore down the altars that had been used to worship God and they had executed or at least put down a number of the prophets and were continuing to do that. But yet he learned that God was doing a work that he was not insightful to. He was seeing that God's work and ministry was way bigger than just him as the prophet. And he learned, as we talked about last week, that God was going to execute judgment against all those people who had rebelled against him, but that he would offer grace to 7,000 who had not yet kissed Baal or bent the knee to worship him. And he heard that God was going to bring the end of Baalism in the nation, but it would be a while. In fact, there would be a, a number of leaders that Elijah would be called to appoint and anoint, uh, one of them being his own successor, Elisha. And he found out at the end of his successor's life was when all of Baalism would be put out of the land of Israel. I think it's important for you and me to recognize that at times God does give snapshots to his prophets about the future. And when he does so, it is a moment for us to pause and say that no matter what is going on around us, what happens in our lives may seem overwhelming to us. God is bigger. God is working in a greater expanded way than we could ever even dream about. And for this moment, Elijah gets a glimpse of that bigness of God. And in this future glimpse, he says, here's who I want you to anoint and appoint. Now, the successor was going to be a man named Elisha. Uh, his word means God is salvation. El, uh, the name for God that's been reduced from Elohim, that El and Yasha, which means salvation. Uh, in our translation, it's 
Elisha, uh, means that God is salvation. So the appointment of Elisha is going to mean the salvation that will come to the land of Israel. And the salvation is going to be that God is going to execute judgment and he is going to extend mercy to the remnant. Now, as he had been instructed, Elijah finds Elisha in his hometown, the fields there, working in the fields. And as he's doing so, there are 12 other yoke of oxen that are working this big farm. And when Elisha passes among the last of them, Elijah takes his mantle or his cloak and he just drapes it around him. And in their culture, that was a signal that you are the appointed one who will take my place. You are my successor. And so uh, Elisha returns, uh, follows after him and asks him, hey, do you mind if I go back and I just say goodbye to my parents? I want to kiss my parents goodbye. And Elijah says to him, sure, you you can go back, but you need to know that um, God has given you a call. And you need not forget that call, for God has something significant for you to do. Now let's consider for a moment this notion of Elijah and the mission that God has given to him. And Elijah, the succession of that mission that is now going to be extended to him. Let's think for a moment the magnitude that a that God was bringing into Elijah's life to bring his ministry to his land. Way bigger than what Elijah would think. And in thinking about that for a moment and seeing the extension of that even into Elijah, let's pause for a minute to say, God, what do you want of me? What is the work of Christ, his purpose, and his mission in me? Because everybody in here who has been called into the kingdom has been called into the kingdom to serve alongside the king. For Jesus left the throne of glory and he humbled himself in order that he might serve us and all of mankind. That he would extend the salvation of Christ to all people. That he would be the way of that salvation. That he would be the declarator of truth in the salvation and his mission is our mission so as we are called into his kingdom we are given the very mission of Jesus Christ have you thought about that what is your mission what has God called you to do I think in just sort of settling into this notion about the Elijah's and the Elisha's that are in this room all who are called to faith in Jesus Christ we need to ask and be able to articulate What is our mission? What has God called us to do? Do you have a purpose? If you're not careful, your life and your mission will be to get up and go to work or go to school, come home, do whatever you do for the next three hours, flip through social media, flip through Netflix, whatever that is, and go to bed and then start it all over again. I don't want my life to be relegated to the fact that I'm going to watch Judge Judy reruns, all right? I want to have purpose. I want to have mission, and I want to be mobile in that. Are you like that? What is that purpose? Can you communicate it? Have you written it down? I'm going to say that if you don't know your purpose, and if you can't even write it down, you're probably not working it. And the Lord has called us to work a mission, to work a purpose. 
It's not something that you have to do in your own strength and ability. It's his mission. It's his mobilization. It's his empowerment. Have a purpose and write it down. If I were going to give a homework assignment, it would be that. Have a purpose, know what that purpose is, and write it down. And then if you're called, which you are, to a pursuit that has eternal value, that coincides with the mission of Jesus Christ, then consider how you can extend that ministry beyond yourself. I know it's shocking to us, but everybody in this room is going to die. Unless Jesus Christ raptures his church before your death, your death is coming. Your days are numbered. God has already appointed the day in which you will be in his presence. That means he has given the grace extended to you and me already to accomplish everything that he has called us to do before we come to him. So that being the case, God has given us a call. He's given us a purpose. He's given us the empowerment to accomplish those things. Let's do that. And because those things are eternal in value, let's build up the successor who will come behind us. Let's figure this thing out that, Lord, when I'm dead and gone, I want your ministry to flourish behind me. In fact, I want it to be greater than what I have been able to accomplish. I want it to be something that is glorious unto you. That was Elijah's point. Elijah recognized this is the call that God has given to me. This is the ministry God has assigned to me, and I need a successor. And listen, the successor was going to be greater than that of Elijah. So think about who is it who is going to succeed you? Who will come behind you? That means if you are a leader, you have to be discipling and nurturing other people to come behind you to continue the mission and the ministry that God has assigned to you. Go forward in that and trust that the Lord is going to help you to build that into other people. In fact, I say we ought to be calculating to extend our mission beyond ourselves. So if you're a life group leader, that means that you are living your life before people. You are communicating God's word well because you're a good student of God's word. You want to rightly divide the word of truth. Man, Kay and I pray that regularly for me. On days that I'm preparing for lessons and messages, Lord, please, if it's not by your spirit to be given to me, I'm asking for it right now. If it doesn't happen, it won't come about that the people will be moved in any way. Let me be one who rightly divides the word of truth. To understand it, to be able to communicate it, to, to walk it, to live it. So if you're a life group leader, that is your assignment, to rightly divide the word of truth, both in your words and in your life. You live life before your people and with your people who are in your life group. And you train and develop people who can come behind you. Listen, if you've been teaching for a dozen years, two dozen years, whatever the number is, and you don't have people that you have raised up to come behind you, you have not succeeded as a life group leader. You have to be an Elijah who ministers well and who also appoints and trains and disciples and mentors the Elijahs in your class. If you're a Christian leader, a business leader, a, a, a community leader, be faithful to Christ who calls and empowers you to live purposefully unto him and then consider expanding that by ministering to other people. Who's going to come behind you? Listen, my prayer, the guy who comes behind me is Hunter Heinzman. You think that I'm not pouring into him? 
I'm pouring everything I can into him. And if God so wishes for him to lead this church one day, it will be my obligation and it will be my greatest honor to train him in the way he should go. And he ought to do the same thing. All of our staff are investing in people because one day God is going to call them home, either in the rapture or in in the coming of Christ or in their death, and they ought to be investing and pouring into people. Every business person ought to be thinking that way. Every community leader ought to be thinking that way. Who will do this and more when I'm leaving? Family leaders, both patriarchs and matriarchs, ought to consider who is going to lead the family in the way of Christ upon your departure. Who is that? Have you sat down with that individual and say, listen, this is what my life is given to with this family. I want to nurture them in the word of God. I want to nurture them so that they're walking in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want them to know who God is, and I want them to grow in the kingdom work of God. But one day, I am not going to be here. And look at me in the eye. It's you who will take on that role. Are you having that kind of conversation with people in your family? Because if you're not then they're probably not going to get it. I'm going to do my very best at your funeral, if the Lord wills for me to do it. And I'm going to encourage your family to take your mantle and run with it. But nothing communicates like you sitting down across the table from somebody and saying, this is the purpose of my life for my family, and one day I'm not going to be here to do that. It's your assignment. Take that and run with it. Invest into those people. Am I making sense? Because this is what Elijah and Elisha's narrative is meant to bring us toward. It's meant to bring us to not just our ministry expanding and doing it well to the honor and glory of Christ, but that others would expand that ministry as well. So we honor Elijah for his life and ministry, and rightfully so, but one of the greatest significant aspects of his ministry was actually anointing Elisha, his successor, His ministry was far more expansive. His prophetic guidance was far more more broadly in the miraculous feats which he did double that which is given to us in Scripture from Elijah. So, yes, Elijah is an amazing leader, but Elisha, who he had poured into and anointed, even becomes a greater leader. So when called upon, Elisha runs back to the prophet and he asks permission, can I just go back and kiss my, my parents goodbye? Yes, yes, but remember the call of God for your life. Don't, don't get sidetracked. In other words, when you go back, there may be distractions that will inhibit you from actually fulfilling the anointing of God on your life. Be careful about that. You know what Elisha does when he goes back? He takes the yoke, which obviously that's, that's an, a crucial implement for a farmer in this day and age. He takes the yoke of the oxen and he builds a fire with it. He takes the ox and he slaughters it and he starts grilling steaks, asking for his family and friends to come. He is throwing himself a goodbye party. And as he throws the goodbye party, he's kissing them goodbye. And he is ridding himself of any distraction of ever going back. My parents had set me up well in business before I came into a full vocational call of ministry. I was a a real estate broker, a 
president of the company, selling real estate, having the, the time of my life, and doing remarkably well. When I finally got to the obedience of the call of Christ, I let the license go. I let all the, the distinguishing characteristics of the certificates go. I sold my part of the business. There was no going back. That was my day of burning the yoke. Some of you have the call of God in your life that's very unique. And somehow you went back and you de decided that you were going to say goodbye or kind of hang out there for a little bit. And along the line, you got distracted. This may be the day the Lord says, it's time. It's time to burn the yoke. It's time to grill the steaks. It's time to gather the family and tell what God's call for your life is. Could I just encourage you to do that? I can tell you from God's word and from my life personally, you won't regret it. Oh, it will bring drastic change, but you won't regret it. Step forward in that life, in that ministry. You know, when the, the writer of Hebrews writes the 11th chapter of Hebrews, he gives us 16 narratives, plus he kind of lumps in a whole bunch of other names in a, in a very generalized way. And what he's doing there, he's telling us the narratives of the Old Testament through people who are incredibly faithful. It's, it's one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible, the 11th chapter of Hebrews. And at the conclusion of that, the writer of Hebrews tells us this. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and every sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that has been set before us. You know what he's saying there? If there's anything in your life that will hinder you, lay it aside. Just, just get rid of that. Go away from that. Let it not be engaged in your life. So for every person who has been called to salvation by Christ, you've been called out of a kingdom of darkness, of sin and weightedness, and into a kingdom of light where there is righteousness. And in that, he says, make sure you're not going back to those hindrances. That is the Elisha moment. He's saying, I am laying aside the weight that may ensnare me, that may trap me. And it wasn't a bad thing. It was oxen and a yoke and a job and a way to provide for himself and his family. He was laying that aside to say, that is a weightedness that will keep me from fulfilling the obligation of the call of God in my life. So is there something in your life right now that is that hindrance something that keeps you from doing the work and the call of God listen for some of us it's um, a 55 inch screen for others it's a screen that fits in your pocket what is that that ensnares you from doing the ministry and the purpose that God has called you to Every Christ follower has a mission on earth, and it's a mission that is meant to have eternal fruit that has been provided unto the glory of Christ. Are there any earthly distractions that keep you from bearing that kind of eternal fruit? And in what ways would Christ call you to trust him in his word, in his power, in his presence, in his victory?
to walk in that. Now, all that kind of sets up where we are today in 2 Kings. So let's go to 2 Kings chapter 2, and let's begin in the first verse of the chapter. Let's read together. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel, and the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you not know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. And Elisha said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you not know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the sons Uh, Excuse me, the two of them went on, and 50 men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. And Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water. You know what? Every time I read that, I think about me in a high school locker room rolling up a towel into a whip and popping somebody. (laughs) Anybody think about that? Uh, If you were on the receiving end of that, I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, I was on the receiving end of that many times. That's sort of the image that you ought to have. It, it was the cloak of the prophet that he rolled up, and it looked like a staff. When he popped that water, it was reminiscent of Moses, who stuck that staff right there and lifted it up, and the Red Sea parted. It's meant to be that kind of imagery. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water, and the water was parted to one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. And when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. In other words, all that God provides in strength and ability and ministry, let it be double to me. You know, the Holy Spirit's ministry is very different in the Old Testament than it is in the New Testament after Pentecost and in our lives as well. The Spirit of God would come and go in the Old Testament. He would come and provide the means for people to accomplish His work, and then He might be lifted from them. Praise be to God. When we have faith in Christ and he makes us born again from heaven above, his spirit indwells us and promises never to leave us. Never. So it's different in this day. He's asking for that double portion of God's spirit working in him. And he said to him, you have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and taught, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by whirlwind into heaven. 
Now you might say, Randy, do you believe that? Absolutely I do. In the exact way that it is written, how would I ever doubt the very one who created heaven and earth? Sure, I believe this in its full. And Elijah saw it and he cried, my father, my father, and the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and he tore them in two pieces. It's a sign of mourning and anguish, a, a sign of great grief. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. And he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water saying, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? This is the moment, right, where he's saying, is this the moment that God's spirit will come upon me? Where is he? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to one side and the other, and Elijah went over now, when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, the spirit of Elijah rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. What an amazing section. In 1 Kings 19, we learn that there was a remnant that was preserved by the Lord there in Israel. And that remnant had remained true to him. Some of them were the sons of the prophets. Those were disciples, or mentees, if you will, who had been under the instruction of the prophets. And uh, as they were gathered in various places throughout the, pla the land of Israel, they studied and they worshiped and they ministered together. And in today's passage, we learn that Elijah and his disciples, like the sons of the prophets, knew that God would soon take him into heaven. Now, I don't know why, but they didn't openly discuss that. The sons of the prophets attempted to bring that to Elijah's attention. But he's like, I know, don't say anything else about it. Anybody have that kind of uh, notion every now and then when somebody tells you something that's a reality? Yes, I know, I don't want to talk about it. Yeah, that's where he is in this moment in his life. The, there's tension in the passage, obviously. I, I wish I had time to kind of hang out here for two or three more weeks. Because there's so much geography that's talked about intentionally here uh, that I think would be important for us to hang out. But we, you, you'll miss lunch if we do that. And 600 of you almost have bought tickets for lunch, and I'm not going to make you mad at me, so we're not going to go there. There's tension as well. We could talk about that. But the tension is obvious that uh, Elisha understood that Elijah would soon be departing. Now, remember, Elijah has lived this life that is really remarkable, incomparable to others in spiritual strength and stamina. This is a man who's like a one-man army of God. He has stood against all those who have come against God, including the king and the queen, and all the evil notions that they have brought against Israel and the people of Israel. And now there is an impending shift in the leadership, and the tension throughout the passage is down to this one question, who is going to lead us when Elijah is gone? And that's the tension. So he's departing. Yes, I know. Don't talk about it. Because who is going to lead us when he's gone? And every place they go from Gilgal down to Jericho and on to the Jordan, it's the same thing. Who is going to lead us when Elijah is gone? And by the end of the text, we learn an important lesson. That is, the word of God does not cease when the prophet departs nor does the purpose of God end when the minister expires. And that is good news. Wondrous. 
wondrous news. Next August, Meadowbrook is going to be 65 years old. That's six years older than me. And that's encouraging to me because there have been many pastors before me and there will be many pastors who follow me. And that gives me a sense of, of calmness because one day, unless the Lord raptures his church, or one day, perhaps unless this ministry fails to stand in truth and spirit and walks away from the eternal truth of God, one day there is going to be a continuation of this church in which other pastors will come behind me. This ministry is not dependent upon me. It never has been and it never will be. I take refuge in that fact that the church is not dependent upon me. You should take a lot of confidence in that as well. Meadowbrook belongs to Jesus Christ. The mission and the people, the uh, uh, empowerment is all by him. So one day at the sovereign will of God, somebody else is going to stand and, and lead this church and proclaim its truth and, and guide its ministries. And, and that will be a wondrous time because God's continuous work will be accomplished through that individual. That reality is constant. It reminds us that God's mission and God's ministry are far greater than any of us. Elijah understood that as well. That the mission was not dependent upon him. It's dependent upon God. It's dependent upon the word of God, the spirit of God. So likely, Elijah was not only grieved at the departure of Elijah that was coming, but he wondered, was he up to fulfill the challenge that God would give to him if he so inclined him to lead the nation? How would he walk in his hero's footsteps? How would he wear the cloak of the man that he so looked up to and revered? Would God grant him the authority to minister like he did Elijah? Those are all good questions. So when the two are traveling from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho and then on to the Jordan River, on each area of the, of the journey, Elisha is insisting that he accompany Elijah. And the 50 sons of the prophets are, are there at the, the Jordan River, and they watch as Elijah's cloak falls, and Elijah picks it up and puts it on. It's a, it's a designation that the mantle has now been passed onto the successor. And they watch him strike the water and watch those waters part, and thereby he could move on dry ground. Now, get the imagery here, and you know the geography. This is really important. The two have made a purposeful move from the northern portion down to the southern portion of Israel, and they cross on the eastern side of the Jordan River. By the way, that's the same place where Moses is going, his life is going to end. And they use the same signal of power parting the waters like what Moses did when he parted the waters of the Red Sea. And his successor did, Joshua, when he parted the very waters of the Jordan River. And they're doing that with intentionality, Elijah is, by the call of God, because he's showing that not only is God's work continuing through Moses and on to Joshua, but God's work has continued in, in Elijah and now on to Elisha. And God would make sure that these things are continuing. So seeing the waters part 
These sons of the prophets say, oh, the, the spirit of Elijah now is on Elisha. So from the start of Elijah's ministry, God has called him to exalt the glory there in Israel. And the prophet has been faithful to accomplish that in the best way possible. But listen, the ministry was not going to be completed with Elijah. He didn't know that to begin with. Part of the reason why he got so despondent, he thought, I'm not doing any good. <laughs> he just didn't know the good was actually going to be fulfilled and completed in Elisha. So some of you are thinking, God, am I making a difference in this day and time? And the answer is, if you're walking in the power of the Spirit and you're preaching and communicating God's truth, the gospel to other people, you are making a mark. But it could be that God wants you to be moving and discipling and mentoring other people who he will do a greater work in them. Would you be eager for that to happen? And the eagerness is identified when you're investing in them, pouring in them discipling them. So God's ministry stream often flows from generation to generation. It's a continual movement of redemptive history. You, you need to know that. That although you and I see it in the window of time as if we're a silo in ministry, God doesn't view it that way. God in his timelessness is seeing all that he wants to accomplish and you are part of this movement of generation after generation of redemptive history. So if you're part of a movement of generational ministry, one generation to another generation to another generation, you have to be investing in that next generation. For the redemptive ministry of Christ to be all that it is, make sure you're moving towards that next generation. So let's be the generation that runs hard with faithfulness, handing that gospel ministry baton to the next generation. And when we complete our portion of the race, let it be that somebody behind us is going to continue running even so harder. Let's cross into heaven with our faces flushed and with sweat pouring and our lungs uh, exercised and panting and muscles strained when we run with all of our might to complete the assignment that God has given to us. Let us run into the open arms of Christ and have him pat us in the hug and say, well done, well done. Let's run hard but only after we've handed off the baton. To that next generation, be reminded that being faithful to your assignment and God's mission in your life is to leave the timing and the results up to God and trusting that those who you've discipled may actually be the ones that God wants to complete the assignment. So 2 Kings teaches us many truths, but one that stands out to me is recognizing your part in the next generation. I am incredibly grateful for Meadowbrook, who since the 22 years I've been here has been given, driven to the younger generations. It was the assignment that the old folks gave me when I came. They said with clarity, Pastor, you make sure you do everything possible to keep the young generations coming. I want to do a little visual illustration of that. If you're 40 or younger, would you just stand up? 
40 or younger stand up in this house? Not the wannabe 40s or younger. <laughs> yeah, 40 or younger. Look at that. Praise the Lord for you. Thank you. You can be seated. So grateful. So grateful for a church that is willing to give and invest to the next generation. And listen, Meadowbrook, you have faithfully contributed resources that God has entrusted to you so that that younger generation have the resources necessary to flourish in their life and in their families' lives. I'm grateful that you have been givers. You have come to understand, as Kay and I have understood as well, that God blesses people who tithe and give to the kingdom purposes. God blesses givers like that. When Israel withheld their blessing of giving and tithes and offerings, the Lord said, hey, you are actually robbing me. What he meant by that was that uh, by not providing in their tithe for the priest and for the temple, the priests, many of them, were actually putting down their ministry and going to work the fields because they needed food. They needed to provide for their families. So the ministry was dropped in order for them to do what was necessary for them to survive. And God says, you have robbed me. The thoughts of the prophet Malachi were given to him by God who wrote this, bring the full tithe to the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if, it will, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Put me to the test, God says. Stop robbing me and give as I've instructed you to give. The New Testament says it similarly. It says the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for the Lord loves a cheerful giver. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Do you know the top ways that Meadowbrook spends money that has been given in offerings, like when the collection plate was passed, or like for KME, the draft that comes from our checking account to this church. You know, you know the top three ways we spend ministry, uh, many, excuse me, money. We spend money on missions, ministers, and ministries. Those are the top three ways: missions, ministers, and ministries. Of the dollars that are given to an age-specific ministry. 85% of those dollars go to the next generation. Of the staff, the majority of them are directed to pastor and mentor the younger generation. We're in the middle of a capital campaign which we're raising funds, the majority of which are going to restore the functionality of the Kid Stuff Theater. Did you know so far of those who have given the majority of that money has been given by people who are in their 70s. You know what that tells me? That this is a church who understands that giving is essential to who we are 
And giving is good for us as people and a church and a ministry that says we think the next generation is essential. So I'm grateful for you. My heart is heavy for churches where we see and serve and try to come alongside of where the populace of the church is elderly without younger generations. My heart is heavy for them. That is a hardship to turn to correct. Meadowbrook, we better stay the course. Sailing exactly in the direction that God would have us, that we are a multi-generational church that recognizes we ought to be focusing on the younger generation. That's what Elijah was doing. He was focusing on the sons of the prophets, and Elisha being one of them. Today, I am grateful to God to say that our nurseries are full, and our children's ministry and our students' ministries are flourishing Blessed be the Lord that we have young adults that are flourishing in their ministry and in their lives. That's just a wondrous success of the Lord. So listen to this. This is a very important point for us. Today's ministry success is not calculable until the next generation proves faithful. You think you got it all together? Gunner, you think this is the greatest ministry of your life? Well, it might be, but the success judge is still out there, and it's based on what's the next generation doing. In other words, how have I invested in them? How have I poured into them? Because if it ends with my life, and if it ends with your life, the ministry doesn't continue. Pour into the next generation. If you're over 50, don't complain about the younger generation. I know they're different than you. Don't complain about that. Instead, invest in them. Pour into them for the glory of God, for the goodness of others, so that their fruitfulness and their faithfulness unto God is good and strong. You have to be the one to determine that by God's call. So Elijah says to Elisha, what shall I do for you before I'm taken from you? That is an excellent question for all of us. The older generation asking of the younger generation, what shall I do for you before I am taken? Now, the response that Elisha gave was, I want a double portion of your spirit. I want a greater opportunity to minister to the glory and the honor of God than you had. I want a double portion. That's a difficult thing, Elijah says. In other words, I can't do that. That's going to be dependent upon God. But I am certain that that prophet went right to prayer to God and asked, Lord, would you give him a double portion? Would you give him a greater opportunity, a greater ministry than even I would have? Can I tell you that there is a younger generation that is asking something of the older generation? And without any question, it was easy for me to come to this question because I hear it regularly. You know what? The number one thing we hear from the younger generation that they're asking of the older generation, will somebody disciple me? That's the number one question we get. Do you have somebody older who could disciple me? So when Elijah asks, what shall I do for you? I want a double portion of you. You've been pouring into me all these years. I want a double portion of your spirit. Who are you pouring into? 
By God's grace, we have older men and women in this room with a heart like Elijah. Wow, thank you. You are pursuing ministry, and you're not quitting. The, the thought of you retiring from the ministry of God is not even a concept for you. You are running hard, breathing heavy, spiritual muscles strained. Blessed be the name of the Lord for you. And you are investing in other people. Stay the course. And there are some of you who are older who say, I want that. I want that. I want to lay aside the weight that trips me up. I want to stop all the ridiculous things that I'm doing that are not of eternal value. And I want to run hard in the ways of Christ. And I want to invest in others. In my life group, in my church, generationally, among leaders, my business, my community, whatever. God is birthing something in you that you might be an Elijah. A number of you younger folks are the Elishas in the room. Man, am I grateful to you. I can't tell you how it encourages me to see your heart so ablaze for him, how you long to pursue well in the ways of Christ. From students to young adults, I am grateful for the Elishas in our in our church family. You're, you're making and you are going to make an incredible impact. You will do far more than my generation ever thought about. Your lives are given to him. And some of you, God by his spirit is stirring that in you. You're saying there's, there's more. There's an opportunity that's greater than the way I'm living right now. And God is birthing in you that kind of hunger. Would you say yes to him? From older to younger, yes. Lord, what you are stirring in me, yes. I want that. And so you're praying, Lord, give me a double portion. 